Hi, and welcome to Zernona Clayton, the podcast. I'm your host, broadcast journalist, and also a family friend, Michelle Miller. And we'll hear from Miss Clayton, or as I like to call her, Biggie. Big or the queen of the town. She is an incredible, wonderful, brilliant woman who for the last 93 years has been an activist, a civil rights visionary, and a broadcast media pioneer. Oh, what a life she's led. So, Biggie, I don't know how you have the energy to go the way you do. You've been up since 2.30 this morning. It is now 5.10, and you're still at it. I'm about to fall out. (laughs) People sleep too much. Oh. (laughs) Well, speaking of which, a lot of what keeps us up is the job. How did you break into the business? It's not even a break into. The break was made for you, or was it? It was interesting. I had no idea, had no plans to go into it. But Ralph McGill, whom I just absolutely adored, said that he liked the way I talked to white people. He said, you... (laughs) That plane. Uh, He said, you teach a lesson without preaching a sermon. I thought that was so neat. And he said, and that makes people listen to what you have to say. But he would set me up like they didn't have any black members of the press club here for a long, long time. And Mr. McGill and I would often go to lunch together. And so this particular day, the press club had a very interesting speaker, which he always did. But he said, come on, Zernona, let's go to lunch. But we got to the door and I said, oh, Mr. McGill, you know our policy here. He said, yeah, but tell me what it is. He said, we have no black members and we haven't yet allowed black membership. And he said, well, she is a member. And I thought he was just making that up. And he said, (laughs) really? And he reached in his pocket and pulled out a membership card and said, see, here it is. That's how I got in the press club. How did you become, like, he just deemed it? He just decided to do that to break the barrier of no blacks allowed. You know, he didn't like that. So now I became a member of the club. But I said that to say that he often did things that were unexpected. This particular day, he said, oh, Zernona, I've got to speak at a luncheon today, and I can't make it now, and I want you to fill in for me. It was a group of media men from uh, up north somewhere. I forgot what the conference was. But anyway, Mr. McGill called and said I was going to be a substitute for the speech. Well, I got there, and they had to take me because Mr. McGill said, do it. (laughs) And so in my speech, I said to them that Dr. King always had compliments for the press. And he said, although... You shouldn't disagree with your boss. I have to take exception with my boss to say I don't have the same respect for the industry that he does. And I said... That's that's throwing down the gauntlet. Yes, yes. And here we were struggling in Birmingham and St. Augustine and trying to break the barrier. Children couldn't even swim in the public swimming pools because of racial prejudice. And I thought that was so silly that their parents had to pay taxes, you know, for the city pool. And I said, and I'll give you some examples. 
you have a white assignment editor who gives a story to a writer, who gives it to a white reporter, who gets a white cameraman, and they all go out to the scene of the denial and bring the film back to the Lily White processor, who gives it to a Lily White editor, who gives it to a Lily White anchor, and they come on, guess what? Isn't this awful? These kids are being burned up in the swimming pools. And I said, now, where's the difference here? You've got a shutout over here in a swimming pool. It's a shutout over there at the television station. And that was my speech. Well, when the event was over, I went back to my office, and Mr. McGill called me and said, hey, Zernona, what did you do today? He said, you got everybody in an uproar. He said, they're looking for you all over town. I said, oh, my gosh. And he, he said, and one of them wants to take you to lunch. I said, oh, my goodness, I guess I'll go. But if I'm not back in an hour, call, put out an APB on me. Well, what happened is they told me how embarrassing it was that I'd made that public statement. He said, but you know what? You did embarrass us, and we're guilty. And so maybe it's about time we change our policy. And that was the beginning of their change the policy, and then they put me in to change the policy. So I became the first black person to have a show. They gave me, gave me a budget and told me to fix up the station the way I wanted, do whatever I wanted, and, oh, it was just great. And that's how I got into it. I mean, they didn't just put you up, set you up in a little nice, cushy office. They made you the star of your own show. I remember, like, watching your every move at that station. You own that place. They were, I, I just did an interview three days ago, and I told them how coming into the station, I had such reminiscence of my wonderful days. The station was so supportive. And, you know, Harry Belafonte had just died, and I said, it makes me remember now when I brought him through these doors to do my interview and how good those days were. The station backed me just so fully and so completely, you know. They canceled their regular Christmas dinner at a very expensive restaurant because they couldn't bring me. And he said, well, we won't come. They said, well, we'll go someplace else for our Christmas dinner. And and they did. And that let me know then they was fully, fully, fully supporting my presence. You mentioned Harry Belafonte, and you knew him back in the day. Oh, yes, yes. Okay, so I met him 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry, I don't think I would have been the woman you were. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He's so fine. (laughs) Harry Belafonte, I don't think we could ever say enough about him for Mm -mm. what he did for the struggle for freedom. Once he met Martin Luther King, he said he knew the man was serious. And he said, I became his friend instantly. And he showed that the whole time Martin Luther King was living. Belafonte said that this struggle needs all of us. And he would just preach that all over the country, wherever he went. But he did more than anybody to raise money, to bring the awareness, to help take care of Coretta and the children. Because she said, Coretta can't take care of these children and Martin Luther King, too. So we've got to get her some help. And so he had someone help him find a housekeeper. And he paid 
that expense for years and years and years, among many other things. You didn't know how to be a journalist, or did you? No. So how did you, I mean, you had to learn on the fly how to be a good interviewer, how to be a fair and impartial interviewer. I mean, how did you learn to become the woman on television when you hadn't been doing it? Michelle, I was the only one who was not trying to be a journalist. I was there to be me. Mm. I can talk. I can ask questions. I have a curious um, persona anyway. So I didn't try to make believe that I'm this seasoned journalist. I was a woman who was given an opportunity to break a barrier. I was going to break the door wide open. And as a result, my station, they encouraged me to go to different stations around the country to talk to them about how much better things were by having me there. We didn't go downhill, we went uphill with ratings. And because I had blacks and white guests on the show all the time, young and old. So I try to present the guests on the show that look like the guests out in the audience, you know, all kinds of people. And that's what I tried to be, not try to be the seasoned journalist, which I was not. You were like, I'm your neighbor. I'm your friend. I'm I'm the girl next door. And I'm asking the questions that you want to ask. And one man and his wife wrote me a letter saying that they had become my friends, having seen me on television. And they said, you know, we have never invited a black person to our home, but we have fallen in love with you. And we've decided that we want to have you come to our house for dinner. They live in South Georgia someplace. And um, they were um, um, preparing collard greens and and the kind of menu he thought that black people all ate. (laughs) But I said, I have to go. And I went. It was a wonderful experience. So I, I I just think about that. I mean, I think about Oprah Winfrey and I think about how millions of people saw her on television and it changed so many minds. You changed a lot of minds just by being there. Exactly. That's what happened. But I think it might have been attributed to the fact that I wasn't trying to preach sermons with my presence on television. I didn't even have to tell anybody I was black. All you had to do was turn the television on, you could see I'm black. So I talked all the time. My programs dealt with humanistic issues. A person who has death in the family can relate to anybody else who has death in the family. And school issues, education problems, trying to pay the bills. And so I just try to deal with issues of life. This is it. Blacks and whites, I had them on together and proved it was no problem. You know, nothing happened. We talked about issues that affected the guests I had on for that night. And the station was absolutely thrilled, and so was I, because I became instantly recognizable on the streets. I'd have men run up and put invitations to marry me in my pocket while I'm walking down down the street. But it proved that I was like anybody else when you get right down to it, you know, that just happened to be in a different color. 
And people would tell me stories about, oh, my wife hates me now because on Saturday or Sunday, whichever night I was on, and said, I've got to watch that show. And I wore pretty clothes, and that helped too. Also, you know, it became, let me see what she has on, the kind of thing. And so they were interested from the beginning to the end. When did it open up to everyone else? How long were you the only one there? Nine years. Nine years. You Mm -hmm. were the only one. Mm -hmm. Well, but what was happening, though, I was helping to open the doors for others. For instance, my station, there's a CBS affiliate, and so they knew other uh, outlets. Uh, I'd go to Florida and talk to management people about, how do we get somebody like you? And I wanted to say, just open the door. They're outside. Just open the door. Don't make the prejudgments. Open the door. They're out there. That's what happened to me. They opened my door for me, and I walked in. And that's the way I would talk to them, including the station where Oprah, you know, started. And really, I would hear from all people all over who were saying, oh, we got a black girl, now we got a black guy doing the news, we got a weather reporter, we got this. Those people were so happy that they would call me and ask me to meet with them and give them some pointers. So I started a a school of pointers, no pay, (laughs) nothing. I just said, don't try to be something you're not. You know, that's what my preachment was. Don't, Don't try to pretend, don't put on, just like you are now, be that on television. Yeah, it's funny. One of the best pieces of advice I ever got was from Harry Smith, who said, be you, do you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Trust yourself. Mm -hmm. If you see it, you can be it. And even though I don't think I ever consciously realized it, I'll never forget seeing you sitting from backstage interviewing whoever it was. Certainly wasn't the Jackson Five because you had them on the week before you invited me down to Atlanta. On purpose. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) because I would have been laid out. Yeah, right. But um, I think about that, and I think about you being the person that my father thought he could pull on his side to talk me out of going into the business. And I remember the conversation And I had declared to my father I wanted to be a broadcast journalist, and he said, oh, Michelle, I don't think that's really an idea for you. Well, we have to remember the background here. I came from when there was nobody on television, you know, black person. When you came along, I mean, everybody was trying to be a journalist. Everybody, everybody was going in. And then- Because, because of all the president's men. Yeah, And, and here's the thing, I know at CNN, they were saying, like, oh, we're the only station? I mean, everybody's applying here. And so I got a feeling for everybody was having the same problem. And I said to your father, why do we want her to go into a field that's already becoming crowded now, coming crowded? We didn't take in consideration that you were already demonstrating some smarts, and maybe you could be in the field and still outnumber and outbest the ones who are out there, which you've ended up doing. Today, when I see you on television, you, you have no idea how many times I think about the fact that I was with him. Well, I loved him, and I did share some of that thinking. So I joined him because he said to me, well, 
You have more influence than I do. I said, oh, no, you got more influence than anybody. <laughs> but no, but I think but. what you did for me was, it was like the first time, because, you know, when you're talking to your parents, you, you have a little bluster and you're like, you get emotional and you, yeah. and like, well, you can't tell me what to do. But I think with sitting you, I had a level of respect and there was enough of a distance in, in like looking at you as a person in the business. But I stated my case and after stating my case, and I, I was like, wait a minute, this is what I want to do. I have a, not only an affinity, not only a, a dedication and a love, but also it's like a passion that if I pour it into this, I can't see myself failing at it. And I don't know, I think you kind of, because I remember you sitting back and saying, well, okay then, give it a go. And, and, and I think about that because I think everyone needs to have someone for whatever they are choosing in life, to have someone there that one is someone they respect but who was pushing back a little bit to give them a free space, a safe space to, to, to charge up and charge out and allow them to express what their path is going to be. But also, we probably did the best job after all because you were pretty strong-headed. You were pretty determined. And then you think about that if she that determined, like, I'll prove to you, I'll prove you guys wrong. I'm going to succeed here because you're telling me I can't or holding back on giving you the real push. And so you ended up doing just that. You know, the first time you appeared, I mean, the world opened. There she is. Well, not the first time because I had some impediments, quite a few. But Michelle, when the head of the speech department and broadcast that Howard came to me and he said, listen, I've got a girl you've got to meet. He said, she's dynamite. And you have a way of working with young people where you've got to know her. Do you mind if I bring her down? And I said, oh, no, not. I'd love to meet her. And I said, by the way, what's her name? He said, Michelle Miller. I said, you're kidding. I said, that's my little girl, you know. Um, he was so proud. Um, and he was coming to tell me, like, you know, she belongs here with CNN or she belongs somewhere, but she belongs to the world because he thought you would just had all the elements of success written all over you. So why didn't I get a job at CNN? Because uh, we didn't really want you. We <laughs> <laughs> you were good enough for the world, but not CNN. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Did you feel like a token at any one point in time? No. Nine years without a black colleague or a colleague of color of any stripe. Well, Michelle, you have to really see it as I saw it. I didn't come there with the attitude of changing the staffing, you know. I wasn't in the employment business. I wasn't going to hire nobody. I came to do a show, and I never forgot that. I wasn't here to change anybody's tactics, you know. Dr. King used to say all the time that people will see by example. Sometimes they'll learn lessons. So I was kind of guided by that. They'll see. I don't have to say, look, I'm black on television. They saw that. Television is very visual. So I have to do a lot of talking and preaching, 
Just see by example, you know, and even the most racist people, I interviewed them too, and I asked, why do you hate black people? And then I said, but you came on my show, they said, well, Miss Clayton, you're different. And white people love to tell you that you're different. And they would have a discussion about what does difference really mean. And so then that starts another lesson in morality, you know. So I didn't try to be what I wasn't. I wasn't there to change the structure, and I wasn't going to hire anybody. I brought my people with me. And, um, and the people said I, I set my standards the first night I came. I brought my housekeeper, who was my carrying my dresses, my wardrobe. I took the people already, the guy who cuts my grass, I brought him with me, and he was my driver. And I came with five people, <laughs> a staff of five. And who were the other Black three? and white, black and white. My makeup lady was white. She was a friend of mine. I just brought them with me. And so the guy said, you set your stand at the first night you open that door. I had five people. So those five, you had people who you felt, one, you could trust. And I already knew them. But I knew they'd love being on television and they do what I say do, you know. When you were having the conversation with the gentleman who was a member of the KKK or someone who didn't see your point of view, why do you think you were convincing to them? Well, I think I'd have to answer that by saying that the times I want to engage in that kind of conversation or relationship, I made it clear that my position on the issue has nothing to do with what you think of me. You see, I'm not afraid to tackle a problem because it might hurt me. So I choose to accept those conflicts in life in a very open way, like um, the Grand Dragon, the Ku Klux Klan, and we were appearing on a, a television show, and he was talking about how much respect he had for me, and the host of the show was talking about how unusual and rare and special this relationship was. This black guy said, there's nothing unusual about this story. He said, white men are always touching up on black women and, and something about black women making them think of going to bed with a white man, something special. So this ain't nothing new. And Mr. Craig, that was the Grand Dragon, was so pained by that because the show was over he said, may I walk you to your card? He'd never done that before. I said, if you'd like, yes. He said, I was really hurt tonight that someone would make our relationship have some tones of, of um, a sexual relationship. And I said, Mr. Craig, there are all kinds of ugly people in this world. You used to be one yourself. You were ugly. Having to put people in a certain color or classification because it fits what you want to say about them, that's an unfair place to place them. And so that man knew nothing about me nor you. He didn't know we were having a sexual relationship or not. That was an ugly thought. So he's the one who looks bad. We don't. Our life is already open. You know, they were writing about us in France and all around the world. Our story had become international. I had men call me 
and said, I want to meet you because you're the first woman I've ever known about who could become close to Calvin Craig. And I want to see for myself if you're black, because he don't say nice things about black people. So I took that example that night, the guy making a sexual relationship out of us, said to him, that's an ugly thought. So ugly, it doesn't matter where you are, when you got ugliness on your mind, it'll come out. And he was trying to defend, but I don't need his defense. And I told him that. But I thanked him for feeling that way. Thank you for joining us for our special podcast series with the incomparable Zernona Clayton. If you enjoyed today's conversation with Big, we hope you'll come back next time for more insider stories and reflections from one of the first ladies of the civil rights movement. Subscribing makes it easy. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. And please, please be sure to rate and review us to help others find the show. This has been Zernona Clayton, the podcast, a production of Boom Integrated and DA Brand Activation Group. Our podcast is executive produced by Naima Rashad, Dennis Adamovich, Adrian Glover, and Robin Lai, with post-production by Boom. I'm Michelle Miller, your host. Thanks so much for listening. And don't miss the documentary, Zenona Clayton, A Life in Black and White. Available anytime on Brown Sugar, Bounce TV's subscription video on demand service. Download the Brown Sugar app today on your phone, PC, or smart TV. Go to brownsugar.com for more information.